Welcome to the Mom Talk Podcast, where we believe that being an informed mom is key to recognize problems at an early age. As a mom in today's world, facing challenges can be overwhelming, but having the right support can make all the difference. We're proud to provide helpful and trustworthy information to support you on your parenting journey. We do this by interviewing parenting experts from all over the world. Visit us at mom-talk.ca to access our podcast library and stay up to date with our latest content. Follow us on social media for more tips, hacks, and inspiration. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey of motherhood. Welcome to Mom Talk, the talk show for moms. I'm your host, Genevieve Carrie Lafave, and I'm with my two co-hosts, Becca Yudewis and Heather Fox. Hi, ladies. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jen. Hi, everyone. Hi, hi. So today we're talking about, it's not about food, but about who feeds you, based on Deborah McNamara's new book titled Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Kids and everyone else we love. So welcome, Deborah. It's so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me back. Lovely to be here. Awesome. Well, Deborah is a clinical counselor, author on faculty at Newfelt Institute. So Deborah, in your book, I read that uh, this book is a result of an unanswered question from Gordon Neufeld. Can I just, I'm just curious, can you talk to us and to our listeners about uh, this question? Yes. When my daughter was about three years of age, my youngest, I was struggling to feed her. Uh, she was what you would say, what people would call picky. And I realized I got alarmed because the way that I was feeding her was creating a relationship or an attachment problem. Now, of course, I'm a counselor that works with families around relationship and emotions and healthy development. And here I was creating one through the feeding process. And so I went to my supervisor, Gordon Neufeld at the time, I was doing a, a postdoc internship with him. And I said, you know, what do I do about my picky eater? You know, all she wants to do is eat bread and cheese and I'm really frustrated. And anyway, he, he would not answer the question. He actually answered it with a cheeky reply, which was, if you just throw in wine, you have the perfect meal with the cheese and bread. And I knew enough about Gordon. I was mad, obviously, at the time because I needed an answer and I was kind of desperate for one and I was really struggling. But what he knew was that the question, the answer wasn't about the food. The answer was about my relationship with my daughter. And so he trusted me enough to think and to know that I would reflect on this and come back to that. I think that's why he he refused. And that's what he wanted for me is to find the answer within myself, that it was about human relationship. It was about emotion. It was about what was happening between us. It wasn't anything to do with the food. If I wanted to increase her receptivity to what I was offering, I needed to change my relationship dance with her. And so he didn't expect that I would write a book to find the answer. But once I got into the literature, I'm like, this is a mess. There is no talk about human relationship. There's no talk about emotions. There's no talk about development. And all we're talking about is food. We are food obsessed and have lost the plot that actually the way to the heart, the way, the way to the stomach is through the heart. And so we've got to get back to thinking about relationship. Mm -hmm. So why food and relationship uh, belongs together? 
Well, they're both primary needs. They're both our most fundamental needs for survival. You can't live on love alone, and nor can you live well on food alone, actually, it turns out. All of our uh, longevity studies shows that we live the longest, not because of just the food we eat or nutrition or exercise. Actually, all of the research on longevity shows that the most important factor is relationship. And it's in the context of relationship that we're meant to be fed and to be cared for. So Abraham Maslow got this wrong in his hierarchy of needs. He put food first. He was actually a traumatized child that created a psychology out of his own trauma. And he put food first and he put love third. That should tell us a lot about Maslow and what what happened for him. But the reality is, is that love, relationship, connection, the attachment instinct, everything, the wiring in the brain is seeking a contact uh, and closeness, hungers for contact and closeness first, because quite frankly, if someone is attached to you, they're more likely to share their food with you. They're more likely to protect you and keep you safe, to teach you, to guide you. Uh, If you're not attached, you know, you're not as likely to share food or other things for survival uh, with that person. And so uh, food and attachment meant to go together. Uh, Food is visible and attachment is invisible so oftentimes in our feeding practices what's happening is that our relationship is being enacted through food it becomes a medium for expressing expressing relationship and human emotion but again we don't see it we don't have words for it it's it's very hard to talk about and so that's why i spent a lot of time trying to figure out the words and the stories to tell this beautiful uh, insight uh, that I that I grasped by struggling with my own daughter's picky eating. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So now how about like we want to get our children to eat healthy food. So how do we keep that good relationship while still encouraging the healthy food? Yeah, so it's all about dependency. Like we want our kids to depend upon us, not for just when they're scared in the middle of the night or when they need help with homework or they're upset. We need our kids to fully depend upon us to take the lead in caring for them. And so the key to receptivity is is having this dependency. Um, And it doesn't just happen around the table. It happens in all aspects of a child's life. But how we show up to feed uh, a child uh, matters a lot. Is there uh, good intentions in what we're doing? Whether or not, you know, the food is considered healthy by other people's standards doesn't mean that our children are actually even paying attention to that. What they're paying attention to is, is there a desire to take care of me, to nurture me, to feed me, to take care of my needs here? And, um, you know, so much of our feeding practices have moved to a very behavioral form of, um, to a very behavioral approach. It's about outcomes. Did you eat enough? Did you eat the right food? Have one more bite. Here's your reward. Here's your punishment. That's not love. That's not caretaking. That's not relationship. If we do that in discipline, look what I'll take away from you. I'm going to consequence, bribe, threat, punish you. It's the same thing. We become an adversary instead of someone who is a caretaker. And so unfortunately, feeding our kids is is very much under this behavioral guise parents are very much afraid or alarmed are they eating enough am i keeping them well kids come with a bias to eat unless there's something serious going on they're going to eat we need to relax a little bit more into our role uh here and uh, if we like the food and they like us then they're probably gonna try it eventually and want to eat it the more you put the focus on the food the more it becomes about food the more problematic our eating problems uh, our eating patterns become the more it's about food the more lost we are it's never meant to be about food it's all about who feeds you Deborah you put it so well because I I don't know if you know but I uh, do feeding as part of my practice as a speech therapist and so much of it is that 
anxiety that has been developed and created around food because they're worried that they're not going to eat because they're worried, you know, are they ever going to eat healthy? There's, it, it leads with that anxiety and, you know, you, you put it just so well. Yeah. Well, thank you mm-hmm. for that. No one, no one can relax around food when it's this angst of like, eat that carrot. It's going to keep you alive. Like, I mean, that's just, that's alarming. Like, whoa, <laughs> that carrot's got way too much power. And, and food can't even be metabolized and used unless you are in relationship. So you could put the best food into your kids and serve it. But if there is no relationship in that context, like there is no connection for that child, they're not metabolizing that food in the same way. It's not from rest. They're not able to use all the nutrients. And so it always comes back to relationship. Trust the body to know what it needs to do with the food that you give. But what food needs from you is to take the lead, to provide the context, to make sure there's emotional rest, to make sure that it's not about your alarm, your needs, your worries here. You know, that just creates indigestion for everybody, including yourself. So we must be at rest in order to digest our food. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about like we're talking about behavior, behavioral. So what is the problem with a behavioral approach to eating? Mm-hmm. Well, it puts the focus on food, the amount. Um, it's very concrete. It doesn't, it ignores that a child comes with an instinct to eat. Uh, a child needs to understand their body and intuitively uh, and, and to feel when it's full, to understand their own safety responses. Food should be enjoyable. The more it's on outcome and pleasure, you make food work. You're not meant to work out of your food. Your food is meant to be a place of rest. It's something to enjoy, to savor. It's a sensory experience. The more it's on outcomes, the more you erode joy and love and food coming together because it's work. This should be a place of play. It should be a place of rest. Children play and discover their food, discover tastes. We like doing that. That's why we go to new restaurants or try new food or fusion but why because we're playing with our food and we're enjoying it in a whole new way it's a gift like food is a gift from mother nature and when we make it all about these outcomes as if we understand you know a child's stomach and what fullness is to that child or what their taste buds are telling them that they like i mean we make a mockery of what development gives us here and healthy you know and what nature gives us here we love food trust me this isn't a problem we get in the way of it we get in the way of that natural development for our children uh, this should be a, a, a place of great play and discovery but our angst and our worry and turning it into work is just it creates anxiety in the kids and it creates anxiety in us and then uh, food can't serve its intended purpose of bringing us together and nourishing us wholly Mm-hmm. That bringing us together piece, you know, like food is such a thing that brings every culture together. You know, it's it's how we socialize a lot of the times, you know, now in, in North America, but across the world. Um, you mentioned that um, that natural development. How is picky eating part of our natural development as an eater? Yeah, I loved digging into the science of picky eating. I absolutely, I, I dreaded it at first, but then once I got into it, I'm like, we have made such a big mistake here in calling our children picky eaters, particularly around two to three years of age. They don't know food yet. It's like, oh, they're picky with what toys they play with. They're picky with their friends. We would never say such things. They're discerning. They're unknowing. They're trying to discover it for the first time. 
uh, it's an age of autonomy. Usually at the age of two or three, it's an age of autonomy. Uh, this is when 50% of people will come into pediatricians, parents will say, or doctors and say, my child's a picky eater. What's happened? They used to eat really well. Now they don't. It's the age of autonomy. It's the age of, I do it myself. No, me do. No, you're not the boss of me. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I'll decide what I want to eat. I'll decide what tastes tastes great. This is wonderful. They decide how they like their toast cut. It's not like you cut it anymore. And you're just like, what just happened? Well, they don't want to simply be fed anymore. They want to become an eater. They want to have some autonomy. They want to explore, unfold, have their own mind, their preferences, wants, wishes. They're not picky. They're coming alive. And so what happens is we have no developmental framework for how children become eaters because it's all behavioral. Did they eat enough? That's the concept. We have no understanding that relationship was meant to infuse this, meaning that we come we come to know our food by the people we are attached to who introduce us to our food, because we also have shyness instincts, which are very profound. The more sensitive your child is, the more likely they have strong shyness instincts, and the more likely they'll end up picky because they're more discerning. They need to be really attached in order to feel safe enough to explore and to ingest something. So of course, shyness comes into play. And of course, brain integration comes into play. Yes, the brain comes into play when it comes to food. Why is that? Because the brain doesn't develop the capacity to do conflicting um, signals. So this and that, you know, where you get that impulse control and the five to seven year old and they shake and shudder and they don't hit because they can feel both frustration and caring at the same time. Well, that's why kids don't do peas and carrots together. They don't like casseroles because it's like, what's a pea? That's a carrot. You know, they'll eat all their carrots and then they'll move on. Like they're they're very different in terms of, of, of being an eater because they're exploring food and getting to know it and getting to understand it and the taste and the feel and the sight. Even if they're not putting it in their mouth, they're just, they're discovering it with, with the smell through the senses. And so, so often we, we go picky we say they're picky because they're not following our agenda. They're not eating like we want to eat. And because they're not so in love with the food that we are in love with because they just don't know it yet. So they need some time. The one interesting study that I found, which I just loved, uh, was a, a psychologist who looked at how children in Mexico, I think it was Oaxa, Mexico, um, came to love spicy food. They did not love spicy food at birth. Uh, even though their mothers ate spicy food, the breast milk did not. At the age of two, they were avoiding really hot spicy food. But he said by age five, all of the kids were eating the same food as their family and at the, late, the same level of spice. By age five, he said something miraculous happened between two and five. They became an eater. They wanted to eat like the people they were attached to. He was very clear to say there was never any coercion in the home. It was just always available. There was just an invitation. The child got to see what you know other people they were attached to uh, like to eat. And this evolution of themselves as an eater uh, came into shape. It's like play. You know, a child at the age of two or three just starts to venture out and play with things. And by age five, you're like, wow, this kid really likes building stuff. Yes, because they're unfolding, they're developing, and you'll end up with a child who really likes, you know, particular things because they've discovered the world. So it's our behavioral approach that's getting in the way here. It's our lack of understanding about how our children become an eater that we see picky eating as a problem because they're not eating the way that we think they should. Now, eating can get stuck and kids can become restrictive and avoidant and dig in 
And, and instead of just seeing it as a food problem, we also need to really look at that as a relational and an emotional problem as well. And it might not be what's going on in the home. It could be what they're bringing in from the school and outside places as well. That's making their, their uh, eating, it's showing up in eating problems. Um, but as long as we see picky eating as a problem this way and we don't make sense of it, then we just battle our kids and the relationship takes the hit and parents get more anxious and kids get more anxious around food. So it's, it's such a fascinating area. Yeah. So that impact of that food battle, like what happens when connection and food and caring, when they are not joined together, like we've kind of interfered too much and what happens? How do we handle that? Well, our kids aren't as receptive to what we have to offer anymore. That's the, that's the tragedy here is that our kids don't depend upon us as much anymore because depending upon us is fraught with frustration or alarm or anxiety. And it won't just be around food that they don't depend. It'll be around a lot of areas that will have a hard time leading. And, and, and conversely, if in other areas of their life they can't depend upon us, it shows up in problems in food where they don't take what we have to eat. So dependency is everything we do. We need our kids to follow, to trust in us. And so if we become adversarial if we become untrustworthy if we don't invite dependency or if our children are really stirred up and we're having a hard time caring for them which has nothing to do with us but outside world then we've really got to use our eyes to say okay uh my kids stirred up i've got to figure out a way to bring them to rest in my care again here um but when we get into the battles you know it's about right or wrong did you eat or not eat we only see what's right in front of us we're in trouble on the relationship end Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how can we protect and care for a child when food is a threat, when it feels like a threat? Yeah, like if you're thinking about allergies or some genetic mm-hmm. illnesses and stuff that kids can have. Well, this is so important. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be a parent and then another to have to parent with special needs, right? And and so you're constantly trying to protect and take care of your child without letting them see how alarmed you are because you want to bring them to rest around the allergy or the, the challenge that they have to face. And so, you know, certainly a lot of the moms I talk to and being a parent of a, of a child with um Uh, special food needs as well um you know you have to lead you have to lead you have to be even more of a mama or papa bear and you have to take the lead and set the the tone and the conditions you know if if a child's really worried about you know i had one mom i talk about in the book who had a son who had uh, allergy testing and the allergy testing set off a huge reaction and so he became very alarmed about the food that set off the reaction and so his mom uh, came to school every every day and said, listen, I'm going to sit with you for 15 minutes and we're going to eat lunch together. I just miss you. I, I, you know, I want to see you because he wouldn't eat at school. He was too alarmed to touch any food unless his mom was around because that was his safety point. So she came to school every day and sat by the office for 10 or 15 minutes, didn't talk about food, just connected with him, played with him, had a conversation. She took the lead. She was the answer. She didn't make it about the food. The more there are food problems, even more so we shouldn't focus on it. Focus on connection, focus on relationship, focus on creating an environment that's free of um, the emotions that are problematic. You don't have to eat at a table. You don't have to eat at a table. There's nothing magic about a table. We didn't even have dining room tables until the Victorian age. And they thought it was a good idea to build houses with a dining room with a table in them. Now we don't even do that. We have open concept, we have bars. You can have a picnic table. You can do whatever you want. Take the lead on the provision of care around food. Make it safe because you are safe to be counted upon. Again, 
we don't get that message. It becomes all about the food. I got to change it. I got to hide these ingredients. Oh, how much do they eat? Do I weigh it? And we get food obsessed and phobic and our kids are so alarmed. So the more you have problems, the more you must take the lead, the more you must find a way through to make a relationship and emotional safety the focus. So yes, that focus is so important. And how else can we restore our relationship with food and our little ones? Yeah, this is a beautiful question. I mean, even that you ask that, even, you know, you see what's come apart here. And I talk a lot about, you know, how there's two things. One, how we introduce our children to food. Do we do it in a natural way as much as possible? Do we introduce food as coming from mother nature? If you go to a farmer's, you know, go to a farm, you go to a farmer's, um, what do you call it? Uh, like a farmer's market. Yeah, thank you. Farmer's market. <laughs> farmer's market we um, all love those specifically yeah. right now it's close to christmas right exactly so. and you get all these beauties so you get you know you're in touch with the source you take them shopping you cook you you know food becomes about pleasure and so you introduce your children into this in a natural way not you know you have to and this is good for you and don't you know the nutrients in here you're just introducing it through play and through enjoyment and so it becomes part of your family culture and and way of being and and the, the other the second thing is is just our rituals around food are really important and that doesn't it, people think oh we have to have a sit down family meal each night no actually i'm not saying that the research showed at least three times a week is beneficial but what i'm saying is is bigger than that actually it's about uh holding on to your own ancestors and uh, you know if pierogies are your thing and you had that ukrainian baba then bring back the ukrainian baba with her pierogies and her her pet and her you know pull it her sausage ukrainian sausage and bring back that you know mine is um irish and uh, english and so it's you know roast roast beef and yorkshire pudding and you know have these uh, traditional foods to anchor us into our own way back ancestors um you know it's also about the rituals that you have you know during a week you can have pancake saturdays or you know friday night pizzas or just you know a way that your kids will come to know appreciate and be able to land on something that represents connection and family and rest and coming together and holding yourself at the table you know as you can if you've got little ones it's okay to bring a book it's okay to sit them on your lap it's okay to tell stories you know it's okay to do that when you've got you know teenagers have discussions you know talk about the plan for the day go out to eat make food don't make food but make when you're eating a point of connection with some ritual and some predictability birthday cakes that stay the you know birthday cakes and celebrations and our feast holidays whatever those feasts mean for you they're really important they all have food to it so don't lose the rituals that bring us together include those beautiful foods and if you don't have any you know cultural uh, roots this way um then Take whatever ones you want, like in terms of, you know, your family likes Japanese food, then just that's, you know, what your family loves. Uh, and uh, but don't don't take for granted how that regular routine predictability that offering that generosity. Basically, if you think it about like if, if you're if your life is like, a you know, if you had a big desert in front of you and you had to go out into that desert, you would want to know in your journey in that desert that there would be little oases that you would stop at where you'd be fed you would be cared for as our children go out into school into life move away from home all of us go away to work come back we all need those little oases of rest that's what your rituals are that's what the predictability is yeah your family meals that's what this your celebrations that's what they are they're little oases in this big huge um vastness that we enter into 
all of the activities we do in the outside world. So it just brings you home over and over and over again. Yeah, Deborah, now I want to take, uh, I actually, I want to show people the book. Uh, do you guys have it, girls? Yeah, yeah, okay. I, as you see, I'm putting lots of post-it on mine, but I want to pick a question from uh, the book that uh, I actually highlighted to myself. And uh, that's not this one. I think it's here. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Deborah. What I, and this is this is in your book, right? So what happens when food becomes love and we pursue it comfort, we pursue its comfort outside and detach from relationship? How can we make sense of emotional eating by understanding the transfer of attachment hunger into food? I, I really like this part. I would like you to talk a little bit about it. Well, food was always meant to be served in the context of caring relationships. Because when it becomes a substitute for it, of course, that's when it can become abused. It can be something we detach from and don't feel our hunger for at all. Or it's something that becomes ravenous and we, we feel we, we pursue it too much, which is also not healthy for us. Food wasn't meant to take care of us. People were. Food can't love you back. Food can't bring you to rest. It's temporary. It soothes you, but it doesn't fully satiate you because food is not a living thing. Food was meant to be a gift through relationships. So when food becomes the object of love, it's depersonalized. The food is not the love. The person who gave it to you, prepared it for you, grew it for you, is where the love is and the invitation for connection, for dependency, where you can lean on, who is inviting you into existence, who wants you to survive, who wants to understand your stories, your meaning, who wants to take care of you, Food is just a sad replacement. And when it becomes a sad replacement, that's when it gets abused. And that's when we get into trouble. We either starve ourselves, eat too much, restrict this, think these foods are bad, right? Eat whatever, the whole range of eating issues that appear when food is taken out of its intended purpose to be a symbol and a gift of our relationship and a symbol of, well, not even a symbol, but an act of caretaking an act of caretaking, right? How can you feel loved if someone doesn't show up to express it often? You can't just feel love because it's magic in the air. Oh, I think they're thinking of me right now. No, when someone expresses their caretaking, when someone takes a step forward to demonstrate their care, then you feel it, but you can't feel it unless it's expressed. And so nature was wise in giving us two to three opportunities a day. Wow to say to someone, you matter to me, let me take care of you. And I'm not saying you have to go out and make home cooked meals and brand, you know, your muffins from scratch. I don't have time for that. But I do make sure that I get ahead of what their needs are, that I am anticipating it, that I'm trying to provide in a generous way, whatever that looks like in the context of my family, which will be different from your family. So food can't love you back. And yet love is our most important need that we have for survival. Yeah. So I hope that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you another question. Uh, a little earlier this year, um, the schools has announced um, that they were going to re like remove a lot of the non-good food available at the schools, right? And um, certain children with... With special needs, sometimes needs to have certain things that maybe it's not like 
whole wheat crust pizza, but it's maybe regular pizza. And then I, I'm here. I heard. I, I see the idea that is good, but I see that on the other side, it also can, can create a, a problem. And uh, when it's hard to feed your children, and then also there's restrictions around like what you can send them to school with. Mm-hmm. How what, how would you? Uh, what's your opinion uh, on this? And how do should we navigate that? Well, there's so many pieces to this, but Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that this policy among whoever put it into place was an act of care in their mind. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I don't think it lands that way for parents and always for children. And so there's a disjuncture here, but we need to back up a little bit even more than that. And that is Canada is one of, is the only G7 country is only the only one out of the G7 countries that doesn't have a national food policy for lunches in schools. We're the only country. Now, there's benefits and and drawbacks to that. The question we should always ask about food is, does the way that I'm doing this help that child feel cared for and resting in my care and dependent upon me this way? Courting children to have decisions on what food is nutritious or not, or teaching them directly, and here's the food pyramid, and all these problems. Children were never meant to be in charge of their nutrition. Come on. This is not the way nature intended it. They're meant to rest in the care of the adults who take care of them and are responsible. So now the school system and daycares and preschools are feeding our children at least one time a day. And so now the provision of food is shared among partners. And so this is where the tension becomes. Whose food is going to take the lead. You could have an indigenous community who says, that's not my food. There's no food sovereignty here. We don't eat that. We're eating salmon and bannock and you know, our game meat and stuff like that. Don't serve us this food. This is not our food. Whose food gets served? And how does one know home? You know, is it the lentils or the rice or the hummus? Like whose food gets served and who has sovereignty here? And what does that represent to a child to taste the, the taste of home and to have that be seamless could is that important um just saying okay this child should eat you know whole wheat cracker instead of a, a other cracker doesn't change food habits that's not how you change food habits food ha- habits change in the context of caring relationships where you're eating with your friends or a teacher or an adult and they're eating those crackers and what is that and i like that and oh you seem to love it maybe i'll try it it's natural it's organic you get to explore it's not forced and you're certainly not put in charge of it the problem is is how we feed our children today is informed by medical science by behaviorism and this push to nutritionism And I'm not saying those don't have valid um, things to offer. They absolutely do. But what is missing is relationship. None of that works unless you have relationship. Are you eating with someone that you feel connected to? Do you want to try what they're trying? I had, you know, this um, one of the schools that I taught to as part of my research for the book, basically they had no staff room. So the staff had to eat, all the teachers had to eat with their students. And the teachers would come in and they would bring a kiwi and the kids would say, what's that? And of course, all the kids went to their teacher. If you're in grade one, you go sit with your grade one teacher. It was so interesting how the kids all flocked to their adults to eat with, which is beautiful uh, because they weren't just eating in their own little packs. They would eat with their teacher and their teacher would say, what is that? And she'd say, oh, it's a kiwi I brought for lunch. And they they had a hot lunch program in the school. And they'd say, well, can, can we try some of that? 
And she'd be like, okay, I only have one kiwi. So she'd cut up in small bits. So she said, then I'd be bringing bags of kiwis to school that week. And then, you know, then I bring in a mango and they're like, what is that? They'd never seen a mango before. And so then they wanted to try it. The way to the stomach is through the heart. Most nutrition and programs and trying to change children's eating habits focuses on information, focuses on nutrition, focuses on, you know, the medical aspects of this or whatever policy, procedure, legalities, but there's no relationship here. So how do we ever think we're going to bring our children and correct the eating problems and challenges that we have today without relationship? We've lost the most fundamental fix for any of these issues. So all I would say about policies is that we have to put relationship first and think about how we, we take care of kids, uh, to make sure that that caring actually gets through because that caring sounds like in how you ask that question, it sounds like it's getting lost. Mm -hmm. Totally. Myself personally, if I take the time to cook something good and healthy, what things that I like, I feel I'm nourishing myself. Is it like, because when I was reading the book, I felt like, um, <clears throat> I do this with myself, but nobody's doing it to me. Yeah. nobody's cooking for me right I know their relationship is with me and the food also I don't know I was I want that was my kind of I don't know if it's a question but I wanted to ask you about that yeah it's a great question and I would challenge you a little bit because I don't think you are eating alone what you cook is probably inspired by somebody or your way back people or whoever influenced your tastes or who yes you absolutely right so you're not eating alone actually you're eating with somebody that you've you pulled into your own uh, nourishment and you're also always eating in relationship to mother nature you did not get that food on your place on your own and in most um in a lot of cultures we would give grace and we would thank um we would thank be thankful for our food because we would realize it's a gift that has come from nature that is given to us without any expectation um, to nourish us so we're always eating in relationship eating to our way back people eating to mother nature our place our culture um, we're always eating in relationship you're not eating on your own so, I love it I go ahead I was gonna say do you guys have any questions yes well, it's not a question it just makes me think of something it for me a sandwich always tastes better when somebody else made it for me well, like any food, time. right? If it's homemade sandwich, I can put the same ingredients together. But when my husband does it or my mom used it or whatever, it tastes so much better. Absolutely. So, it's because like bristle barbecue hamburgers or something, same thing. And I'll say, can you please put mine together? He's like, I'm like, no, it just tastes better when you do it. Like <laughs> that is, I found that universally that that sense of when one is taken care of, there was research that showed if you feel that someone is taking care of you and there's generosity and good intentions and caring and warmth and what they're offering you, it changes your taste buds. It changes your perception of the food and you feel like there's love in it and you feel cared for and the food tastes good, even if they burnt it. And this is also why marketers will oftentimes label their food products auntie or uncle or papa or mama this is mama's recipe why because they're trying to evoke that sense of someone's caring for you in a generous way it's just a ploy of course it's completely depersonalized that is full-on marketing too right <laughs> exactly it's true um, yeah no i i absolutely see that uh, especially with my six-year-old it's funny um when you're talking about this this is who I'm, I'm thinking about because if you ask him what his favorite food it almost depends on who he's with and or where he's with, because with my mom, 
he's got his like top three foods, but he would never ask me to make that. Yes. Where at home he has completely different foods, um, and I think he would say that both of us are good cooks, um, but they're they're completely different. What he craves, and I, you know, this is where your book I think is getting to, is that it's the relationship. It's not the food itself; it's the relationship. And I think your book says it really well. Thank you for that. Well, it's such a personal invitation, right? And you know, you think when you make something for somebody, you're, you know, I'm always putting in like an extra cinnamon because I know my daughter likes cinnamon or nutmeg or whatever, like in the carrot uh, recipe that I put in there and uh, that I talk about in Nourished, because it's a personal, it's exclusive, it's like your fingerprint. It's like you know, relationships they're unique. When two people come together, there is that dance of invitation and receptivity. You offer and they lean into you, and then you know it goes back and forth and it's it's the stories that you can tell the music that only you can sing the way that you say things the way you make a certain dish it it, it gets wired up in the brain those repeated patterns get wired up in the brain why so we know where home is mm -hmm. beautiful well lastly um deborah i'm gonna quote uh gordon you here so after reading this groundbreaking work it will be impossible for you to ever view food as just food again. And I thought that was so well said. And I have read your book. And uh, now I'm, as you see, there's many, many posted on my book, and my girlfriends really want your book now. So I will leave sharing it, but I'm inviting everybody to go buy it. It's very different than any other books. And I haven't read on parenting or picky eating, miles development, like, like, like uh, discipline, all kind of different things. And we talk between moms, like this is very different. So uh, if you're, uh, if you want to bring something different and uh, like it says, and for everyone else we love, I think uh, that that's a really good buy. So thank you so much, Deborah. Um, Deborah, I want to know where can people reach you and where can people buy your book? Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And I do think it is, it's about love, the book. And uh, But you're right. It, it felt very different to write um, from my other book and from very different than the other books yes yeah. and uh and it felt uh like a coming home something sacred had been recovered so i appreciate your thoughts and sentiments that way you can find me of course on uh my website uh, mcnamara.ca um you can pick up the book at any canadian bookstores and online um at any international booksellers and i would say that if you want to some people have asked me about book clubs if i think it's a great book club uh book actually because i think it generates tons of discussion um and you can get those off my website if you buy bulk so yeah question you. for you is it available audio i had someone asking me that uh it's i'm going into the studio to record it soon so it's, okay it's okay perfect so thank you thank you again deborah so to reach us or to view all our available episodes visit our website at mom-talk.ca or visit the mom talk youtube channel or you can simply go to all the podcast platform. We're a little bit everywhere. So the Mom Talk Show previously called Parent Talk Podcast and Les Parents Parlent Balado is a bilingual show. So sometimes we have some French episodes. So check out our great content in both French and English. So if you're an expert in the parenting world, please visit the contact us section on our website at mom-talk.ca. We want to have you on the show. Don't hesitate to contact us. Mom Talk would like to thank our generous sponsor, the Tri-Cities Community Television and La Société Francophone de Maillardville. Also, if you know a mom who would benefit from watching or listening to this episode, please spread the love, share it with her. Always remember, it's important to laugh, 
Keep learning, cherish your village, and be true to yourself. See you with another amazing guest from Becca, Heather, and I, Genevieve. Thank you for joining us.